coming towards the end of this uh, well study, I guess, and, and preaching sessions in this great book. And, you know, as I've read through it, I've, I've tried um, each week to, 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 to read through the whole book, um, or letter, whatever we like to call it. I won't get too caught up in, in uh, the theology and the history of it. But, um, you know, as various preachers have preached, and I've tried to read through, the, I've read through the whole 13 chapters, I've, goodness knows how many times, but I keep reading through it and... You know, the one thing that keeps coming back every time as I've read through it, 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 picturing faces of people who have been in similar situations, not, obviously not from a Jewish background, but have been in a situation where a letter like this would really have, a, have applied to them, where they've taken up the challenge and, and, and you know, then found themselves, you know, being drawn back, being drawn back as these Jews were being drawn back to, to their own um, Judaism, if we use that phrase. Um, but people in my lifetime, obviously not being dragged back into Judaism, but being dragged back into the world. And the number of faces, and, and even in my lifetime, and, and I guess only being involved in churches of, of, of similar size to this, probably even smaller in some cases, but the number of people who have started out on this journey... Uh, but have given up and been drawn back into the world. And it, it, it's quite incredible uh, to think, and I can see their faces, and, you know, sometimes if a, a tear and a, and a lump comes in my throat for those folk. And, you know, I, I really pray, that even though I've lost touch with, with, well, vast majority of them, that that seed that was sown will somehow germinate and that they have taken up the challenge and have become the people that God intended them to be. But uh, the, the whole of this letter keeps reminding us, doesn't it? He, he's writing to these guys and he's saying, look, you know, why? Why do you want to go back? And even right at the end of this letter now, as he comes to the finish of it, it's the same question, why? There's a story told, or, um, um, we, we will be looking at 18 to 29, but I just wanted to deal with these couple of verses that revolve around uh, Esau which should have been done last week, and it was just as well I didn't do them because we'd have been here all night. But um, there's a story told of two friends. Uh, one of them was a great uh, book lover, uh, and he would, he would collect books, uh, antique books, you know, and, and any kind of books. He was a great book lover, talking to his friend of many years. And uh, this friend was saying to him, he said, I know you're a book lover. He said, but he, he said, I threw out an old Bible, he said, that I found in the attic the other week. Um, he said it had been up in the attic and it had been in my family for years and years he said but I opened it up and he said it was, it was, the pages had gone and the, the ink was so thick and black and he said the, the English was very difficult to read he said it, was, it really was a waste of time trying to get rid of it he said, um, and his friend said to him well, what else can you tell me about it and he said well he said, I can't remember much he said I remember something Gutten, Gutten something and his friend, who was the antique book, he said, Gutenberg? He said, that's it. He said, do you realise that the Gutenberg Bible was one of the first books that ever went into print? He said, less than two months ago, one of them was sold at auction for over $2,000. And his friend, well, he said, mine wouldn't have, wouldn't have fetched a dollar, he said. Some guy called Luther had scratched all over it and scribbled all over it in German. 
Silly story. But it's told to show how easy a person can treat as worthless something that is valuable. Ivy will always tell you the story when they came, when her father died and they came to, well, not, no, sorry, not when he died, but when they moved him out of his old house with a slum, slum clearance and they moved him into a, well, what is now probably a slum anyway, but they moved him into a new block of flats that were not too far away from home and they cleared his cellar out. You could never go down in the cellar of my father-in-law's house. It was full of junk. But Ivy will always say, I'd love to know what that was worth when we gave it all away because there must have been stuff down there that was years and years old. But how easy it is to get rid of something that is valuable, thinking it's worthless. And didn't that happen to Esau? That great story of a guy who who gave away his God-given birthright for a bowl of stew. And how he came to regret it, even with tears pleading to his father to give him the blessing back. But it had gone, it had been given away for a bowl of stew. You know, sometimes I wonder, I mean, that is is how the scripture depicts it. And in one commentary I was reading on this, it sort of compared him with, with, um, to a degree, with, with Judas who really gave away something that was worthwhile, not really truly realising the value of it, and having regrets. And Esau had regrets. Judas had regrets. He went back to the priest. But you see, these two guys, one went back to his father, the other one went to the priests. But there's a big difference, and it, came, it, it, it hit me once again between the eyes. There's a big difference between repentance and regret. Now I know this is a very uh, forceful argument and statement, but I wonder if both Esau and Judas could have received forgiveness had they gone to the right people. You see, Judas took his money back to the priests and uh, and really said to them, look, take it back, and and, and was more or less looking for their absolution. But I wonder if he'd have gone back. I often wonder, and I'm not making any theological statements here, but I often wonder, had he gone back to the right person and asked forgiveness? And how true is that of people you know, we don't, we don't really regret our sin until we're found out. Or until, as I said last week, we, we reap the, the harvest of our sins and it comes back and bites us. That's when we start to feel sorry about it. But that is not repentance. That's regret very often. Very often there's sort of anger that we've been found out or anger that something has, has come back to bite us and we've suffered the consequences of our sin. But it is not repentance. And this word repentance, you know, I keep saying it, the forgotten word. It's the forgotten word of 21st century preaching. It's about coming to Christ to repent of our sins. 
to hand them over to him to start a whole new way. And it's not easy. And these new Christians in, the, in, the, in this, this book of Hebrews, these, these, from the Jewish background mainly, but these new Christians were finding that. And how we need to pray for our new Christians when they come along. How we need to take them under our wings to teach them the right way. He lost it. He lost his birthright for a bowl of stew. How sad. And how we need to be careful of the bargains and often the compromises that we make in life. Our culture places a high price on what is worthless and throws it away as worthless. But they also throw away stuff that is worthwhile. Things that are of eternal value. And how we need to pray for discernment to decide what is worthless and what is worthwhile. This writer to the Hebrews throughout the letter pleads with his readers not to be tempted to throw away a priceless possession. And for them it's the new covenant rather than the old covenant that they're tending to drift back towards. And then we come to tonight's reading, which is uh, Hebrews 12, hopefully 18 or 19, through to the end of the chapter. Yes, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned, said God. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He takes his readers back to the, probably the most outstanding event in their history, which was the giving of the first covenant. It was given with such solemn and breathtaking accompaniments that the nation never forgot it. I think I said it last week, didn't I, that um, 
John Golding Gay, the Old Testament uh, theologian, said that uh, when he, as he studied the Old Testament, that most visits from God were more akin to a visit from the Mafia. And wasn't this true of Mount Sinai? What a frightening experience. These people came before God, but so far and no further. Don't touch the mountain. And even if your animals touch the mountains, you're to stone them. Even Moses was scared, trembling with fear. When people say you should fear God, very often we, 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 te- we tend to tamper that down a little bit because we say, really, that word fear sort of means sort of respect. I think it would be a lot more helpful to us as Christians if we were actually frightened of God, because we should be. Because he holds you in the palm of his hand. In fact, he holds all creation. And without fear, standing before God without fear, no. This world doesn't fear God. This world is not frightened of God. It has, no, it has contempt for God. But if we come before God in the correct manner, with reverence and fear which will draw us into that respect and awe. Do we still hold God in awe? Do we really know the true meaning of the word awe? You hear kids use it today, don't you? I mean, you know, this is not a, this is not a, a criticism of young people. I'm sure if it, the word had been around, in, well, it was around in my day, but it wasn't yeah, used so much, but we hear young people, awesome. Oh, it's awesome. Did you see so-and-so on the telly last night? Awesome. Have you heard Science Who's latest CD? Awesome. And the word has lost its meaning. If you use a word enough, it loses its meaning. You notice how bad language is creeping into every TV programme. Eventually it will lose its meaning and we'll watch it without even thinking about it. It happens. We must always be aware that God is holy. And holiness is always dangerous when it comes into contact with corruption and sin. Holiness is always dangerous when it comes into contact with corruption and sin. And when you think of that, 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 mountain experience on Mount Sinai or in the surrounding area the wonder is that anybody survived it you read the account of it particularly the the account in in, uh, Deuteronomy I don't think a meeting with the mafia had anything on it really the Israelites were forbidden on pain of death from stepping onto God's holy mountain And the the tragedy of it is for 1,400 years they worshipped God from a distance. There was always that distance between God and his people. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, do you really want to go back to that? 
And you remember from back in the other, cha in the other chapters where people had actually turned away and gone back to it, but how close they had come, even experiencing, even experiencing the Holy Spirit. You remember that chapter? Was it chapter 4 or 5? Basically, you would have read that and thought, well, surely these people were saved. But no, they had turned back, turned away. They'd come so far, but they'd always worshipped God from a distance. And we know that for a fact because only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies just once a year for the forgiveness of sin. He's just reminding them how it was. But you, but you have come to Mount Zion. You have come into this new covenant, this last covenant. But isn't it strange how different it was when you think of Mount Sinai and when you read that story of how dreadful it was for the people. But God came down from the mountain. Is that good news? Or is it good news? God came down from the mountain to dwell among men. Beautiful piece of, of, of uh, work here from, from uh, one book I read. No one noticed, no one knew, no one heard. The ground did not tremble. Because he came not as a king, but as a pinpoint fetus in the womb of a young Hebrew girl, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. How the incarnate deity, the God of Sinai, became the man of Calvary. No longer to be worshipped at a distance, but to dwell in the hearts of men and women that our guilt might be atoned for once and for all and that we would no longer spend our lives in fear but in awesome wonder. Why would they honestly even consider wanting to go back? Verse 22, but you have come. I can't remember my... English grammar too well, if at all. But you have come. Present, future tense. You have come. It's happening. It's happening, isn't it? Those who came to Sinai, even in experiencing the, 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 the revelation of God, hearing his voice, seeing the, 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 the mountain shrouded in dark, And yet within no time at all, building a golden calf to worship. Do we ever learn? We live in a rebellious world and it's so easy to get caught up in, isn't it? It's so easy to get caught up in. There's a neat little cartoon. 
such a simple thing really, but there's a picture of an old-fashioned ark floating on the water. In the background, a grand liner. And soon you see the liner coming close towards the, 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 the ark and it draws up alongside the ark and it dwarfs the ark on the sea with this great big liner. And then we notice people beginning to abandon the ark, walking up the gangway of the liner and the captain's voice saying, Welcome aboard! And not a moment too soon, judging by the state of that old tub. And then you see the liner pulling away. And for the first time you see the name SS Titanic. We're on an old tub. We're on God's ark. And all these wonderful liners come past, don't they? All the temptations in the world. And people see them and climb aboard. And this is the warning here, really, in the whole of Hebrews. But particularly this, as he comes to the end, look, why do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back to what that was? You, you know, you, you've, you've found something here that is eternal. This is eternal life. This is not, this is not the first covenant. That it, it's been superseded. And as he said earlier on, there was nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't adequate. There was no salvation in the old covenant. But here it is, and it's been given to you. It's free. And you're still insisting on going back the old way. And the world, will call, the world will call for you to abandon the ark. But those who abandon the ark and take up position on the liner will ultimately be doomed. They will stand before God. Everybody will stand before God. The millionaire without his millions... The Hollywood star without their adoring fans and the intellectuals staggered by the greatest mind of all. The beautiful people, the brilliant people, the confident people, all people will stand before him because as he tells us here in chapter 12 towards the end there, he is the judge of all the earth. And the only way that you will avoid that is through Jesus Christ who will be your advocate before God. Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's still the same God. Although the covenant may have changed, God has never changed. He's the same God of both mountains. He's the God of Sinai and the God of Zion. And his holiness is a consuming fire. But at the same time, he's a God who calls men and women to safety 
and peace. God has not abandoned his world, but his wrath is shaking. He's still here in all, calling all, rescuing millions. And those who have his promise of Mount Zion may well be thankful and worship him with reverence and awe. And the God of Sinai is calling you and me to Zion. Why go back? Look at what you've experienced, and they had. Look what you've found. And you're still tugging. And I've yet to meet a Christian. And if you are one, please tell me, because I'll shake you by the hand, because you'll be the first. But I've yet to meet a Christian who doesn't feel the tug of the world. You might say, yeah, well, there's lots of good things in the world. Maybe. But it's the good things that often keep people from church. It's the good things that often keep people from joining together. It's the good things that take us away from worshipping the one true God. When Esau took his bowl of stew and he was starving, hungry, and he'd been out in the field shooting pheasants and deer, that bowl of stew looked wonderful to him, didn't it? But by heck, didn't it cost him? Can't it be the same for us? Can't it be the same for us? Not all out there is bad, and it's not all obvious, is it, at times? Things that keep us from doing what God wants us to do. Not necessarily something that's bad and what we consider evil. We wouldn't do those sort of things because we're Christians, we know that. But there are still things in the world. How do we use our time? Time isn't a bad thing, but how do we use our time? Money isn't a bad thing, but how do we use our money? Families are not bad things, but do we allow them sometimes to get in the way of what God wants us to do? Do these things, do any of these things that, 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 that really feel good to us do they stand between you and God? Do they stand in between you and that relationship that you have with God? There was nothing wrong with the old covenant. How could it be? It was what God had made. And God doesn't make bad or wrong things. But here was a new way that superseded that. And it was of God. this writer said to Hebrews he's, he's, he's urging them look stick with it you're suffering a bit remember at the start of this chapter you're suffering a bit but you really haven't been called on to shed any blood yet now that doesn't mean to say obviously that they may not have been but you're not being you haven't been called on that much and yet you're, you're thinking of turning back now what what you he's probably feeling in his own heart what are they going to be like when they do really start to suffer Don't give up. You know what it was like at Zion. You've read, you know your scriptures. You've read your scriptures. You've been taught well. You know what it was like there. It, 
It, it, is that the, the, the attitude that you want God to show to you? Do you really want to be scared and trembling and frightened to even, even talk to God or, or come before him? Because now he's given you a better way. Can't you see that? Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Press on. Press on. Yes, fear God. But fear him in a respectful way. It, it, it tickled me a little bit, but it shouldn't really because it was a, a very serious sort of word. But, you know, the guy halfway through a very serious sermon came, up and came out with it and talking about approaching God and the way that the people in Sinai approach God. And he said, don't you dare, don't you dare come before God with your hands in your pockets whistling a happy tune. That is not how you approach God. He is still God, even though he's the God of Zion. And he's made it relatively easy for us. But he's also still the God of Sinai. He needs and he deserves our respect. Absolutely. But we don't have to be afraid in, the, in, in, in terms of being frightened anymore because he has come off the mountain. He has come to earth. And he now dwells among men. In your heart, hopefully, and in mine. Yes, the God of Sinai to be respected, but the God of Zion to be loved and adored for what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And as we come around this table in a few moments' time, give us a chance to remember that and give thanks for what he has done to us for us. And that is indeed the God of Zion.